I was watching TV this week, as I often do, and I was struck by a bit of dialogue in this series I have been enjoying, The Shy, that follows the stories of a number of different families and individuals in Chicago. This particular family had a teenage daughter, Keisha, who had gone missing. After some time passes, the police call and ask the parents to come to identify a body that has been found on the chance that it may be their daughter. It turns out not to be. Returning home, one of the parents Tears in her eyes says, oh, babe, I am so relieved it isn't Keisha. And the other parent, after a long pause, during which many different emotions play across her face, says, yes, but it is someone's daughter. Though we may not all be able to relate to the precise drama that is being played out here, I think we can all relate to the conflicting emotions portrayed in this simple exchange. There is relief, of course. It didn't happen to us. How can we not be grateful? The winds blew the fire in a different direction. I didn't lose my job in the last round of layoffs. The shooting didn't happen in this community. And we are relieved. We are grateful. And yet there were houses in the fire's new path. There were people who did lose their jobs. There was a shooting in that other community. We live in that tension every day. We sometimes are the sufferers, sometimes are the ones relieved that somehow suffering has been avoided. Somehow, suffering has been avoided. And the question is, how? How does that work? Folk singer Phil Oaks sings, Show me a prison, show me a jail. Show me a prisoner whose face has gone pale, and I'll show you a young man with so many reasons why. And there but for fortune may go you or I. And the verses continue with one example after another. There but for fortune, as in fortunate There but for the fact that we have been fortunate may go you or I. I am reminded of the line from Maya Angelou's poem, The Human Family, which we heard back in May. We are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. Because the tendency is to think how very different I am than the prisoner. I, after all, did not commit a crime, which is why I am not suffering imprisonment. But Oaks says, there but for fortune may go you or I. I became interested in this phrase, there but for fortune, and did a quick bit of online research. It seems to have grown out of the phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. 
And one of the origin stories has indeed to do with prisoners. English reformer and martyr John Bradford, who lived in the 1500s watching prisoners led to the scaffold, was said to utter, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford, speaking of himself in the third person. In other words, I am only spared by the grace of God from committing such crimes, from suffering a similar punishment. The grace of God did not spare him for long, however, as Queen Mary had him arrested and imprisoned in the Tower of London for trying to stir up a mob with anti-Catholic sentiment, and he was eventually burned at the stake. Now, we may have understandable questions about the theology or philosophy behind these phrases. There but for the grace of God and there but for fortune seem originally, however, to serve as ways to humble ourselves before the suffering of others, especially when we suspect that suffering was somehow deserved, that those people brought it upon themselves. Hold on, these phrases remind us. Hold on, this could have easily been you or me. Through no particular merits of our own, but simply through the grace of God or the whims of fate and fortune or the unpredictable paths of circumstance and chance, we were able to avoid this. There, but for fortune. And what I wanted to explore a bit today was suffering in a more general sense, a suffering that we may feel that we bring upon ourselves and suffering that just happens, that seems beyond our control. And to think about how we sort out the empathetic ache that arises from witnessing the pain of others and reconcile that with the relief and gratitude that is undoubtedly present if we have managed to avoid the very misery that others are experiencing. How do we make sense of all that and walk through it responsibly and realistically and compassionately as best we can? I read the lines from poet William Blake, every night and every morn, Some to misery are born. Every morn and every night, some are born to sweet delight. And on the one hand, these lines offend my sense of justice and fairness. I think, this can't be right. This is not how the world works. And on the other hand, I am thinking, dang, there is some truth here. Now, I know that we can easily exaggerate the sweet delight of others looking only at how they present, comparing our insides to their outsides and thinking they haven't made everything has fallen into place, their lives are rosy, while just a quick peek below the surface would reveal that these folks have challenges, deep sorrows, complex struggles along with everyone else. Some things, very visible things, may make life easier for them, but all the rest is there, all that comes with life. I know that. Believe me, as a minister, I have found that to be true. 
We can also sometimes exaggerate the misery of others living in circumstances that we can't imagine hold much joy, missing the human capacity to nurture gratitude and happiness in extremely challenging circumstances. And still, with all that said, it seems to me that there are those who just clearly contend with more struggles and sorrow than others. They have, borrowing a phrase remembered from childhood, a harder row to hoe. They have more than their share of pain. And by speaking of pain as a share, their share of pain, it implies that pain is being meted out by God or fate or life itself. Everyone should get a share, but not too much. And if we're to be fair, not too little. And then William Blake comes along and says, yeah, not so much. It's really not about fair shares. How do I make sense of this? There is something in me that seeks out a way to protect myself from pain and suffering that imagines there has to be some key to understanding how and why people suffer. If it is not spread among all of us in equal measure, how do I avoid having an undue amount fall on me? I can have compassion for those who are going through painful things, and I also want to avoid having those painful things happen to me. This is where I can get into trouble. This is where societally we can get into trouble. It inspires me to find reasons that suffering occurs so that I can distance myself from it. And trying to distance myself from it can cause its own suffering. In the case of people sent to prison, which we talked about earlier, it is easy enough to find reasons. They are suffering imprisonment because they committed a crime. I did not commit that crime, thus I'm not suffering the consequences, true enough, as far as it goes. Phil Oakes and John Bradford and Maya Angelou remind me that I needn't get too cocky about the difference between myself and the prisoner. There but for fortune, there but for the grace of God, we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. Rather than self-righteous, I should feel grateful that circumstances never push me toward crimes of which I am undoubtedly capable. This is not to negate personal responsibility, but it is to say that humans are a complex stew of emotions and motivations and nature and nurture and that our actions and reactions cannot be clearly and simply traced and that each of us is capable of traveling to the heights and sinking into the depths of human nature. And it is to say that that same protective instinct that makes me want to distance myself from the criminal can also lead me to reason away the suffering of many others in a similar manner. Homeless people don't really want homes. They don't want to work. And I know it's a complicated issue. You will find individuals who are unhoused who will say that to you. And there is a range of reasons for that. 
It's not the issue I wish to explore today. What I do want to explore is how saying that, thinking that, believing that, in a broad, overarching, general sense, believing that homeless people really don't want homes, they don't want to work, serves to distance me psychologically from their plight. If that statement is true and explains why they are homeless, then I don't have to worry about ever being homeless because I do want a home and I am willing to work. How about this one? You create your own reality. You've heard that. You've maybe said that. You've maybe sung that. Accentuate the positive. I've probably preached that in roundabout ways. Because there is some truth there. It may even be a helpful guide when I use it for myself, a reminder that I have choices about how I view adversity and how I respond to other people and to my own circumstances. But when it is turned outward, when I use it to explain your suffering, well, it is unhelpful to say the least. Just like everything happens for a reason, It can be weaponized to dismiss another's pain, to distance myself so that, again, I feel protected. When what I really long to do is to reach out in compassion, to feel a kinship with the person who is in pain, even while I can feel relieved that I am not suffering the same, knowing that the distance between us is paper-thin and that there but for fortune go I. And when this happens to me, when I am the one suffering, I only hope there are people there who don't try to explain it to me, look for reasons, but simply surround me with the often clumsy but no less real love that we have for people going through hard, hard things. Because the truth is, however unequal the shares of pain may be, all of our lives hold bitter with the sweet, as so beautifully expressed by Allison. I have come to think that if I work less to protect myself from this reality and simply practice awareness, I experience my own life more fully and I am capable of greater generosity and deeper compassion for others who are in painful places, knowing that there but for fortune. I can find delight sometimes where it is least expected. And while I will not ever be able to extinguish the instinctual desire for safety from harm, I can confirm along with Gabor Mate that real safety is not the absence of threat. It is the presence of connection. Real safety is not the absence of threat. It is the presence of connection. So may it be.